Hello listeners, Glenn Butler here for the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, and I would like to tell you about a new concept we're trying here on the podcast, the Spectacular Advice Hour, where we will answer your advice questions. If you're in a situation that you just can't crack, you're in a crossroads in your life, you're in a real bind, uh, big or small, we want to help. Uh, that will be myself, my brother Scott, and my dear friend, Mr. Steve Willie, who does some of this stuff for a living, so, so he might have the actual good advice. Uh, the way to reach us for that is uh, by email at spectacularadvice at gmail.com. The other is our ask.fm page at ask.fm slash spectacularadvice. We won't read your name unless you tell us it's all right or give us a sleepless in Seattle style nom de plume. And Ask.fm questions can be totally anonymous if you have an account. So reach out to us. We want to help. And now on with the show. You don't need Luke Skywalker. I do. I need you. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com. The only place to be in your pop culture world. Listeners, and welcome to episode 36 of the Glenn Butler Podcast, Our Spectacular, where we are talking about Star Wars again, because we saw the movie again, and we had a few more things to say about it. We thought we had a few more topics that we didn't quite get to last time, and it's always fun to talk about this stuff, so we are going to get right into it. I, of course, have my brother, my own flesh and blood with me, Mr. Scott Butler. Scott! If you were to create an online petition about The Last Jedi, what would that petition demand? I would demand an immediate ban on all online petitions about The Last Jedi. Because, Jesus, fuck, what is wrong with people? Can't you just enjoy a fucking movie? That, I will admit, was exactly what I was going to say, so good deal, good job. I've beaten your tricksy questions. Uh, you solved my question puzzle. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also have with us, of course, our Star Wars correspondent, Alana Kelly. Alana, if you were to create an online petition about The Last Jedi, what would that petition demand? Congratulations, white boys. You paid double for episode nine. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what exactly that means. 
Like the amount of reactionary hand wringing from it's not all white dudes, but many dudes, many of whom are white, means that they can pay double for the privilege of getting the story resolved in episode nine. <laughs> I'm over it. <laughs> yeah, there's this obsession with like the way that they think the story is supposed to go, and any deviation from that is evil and must be killed. Mm-hmm. Well, Star Wars isn't even Star Wars anymore now that it has girls in it. Oh yeah, clearly. Like, literally mm-hmm. wasn't one of the petitions, like, you know, we need to get Ray out of the series. Like, three years later, they're still talking about that. Yeah, that that is seriously pathetic. <laughs> Not like our objections, we're the good ones. <laughs> all, all the people wringing their hands about this are just they need to just get a grip get a get a handle on what they're doing with their lives and decide if this is really the sort of thing they want to devote time and effort into except for me when i rip the shit out of that whole canto bright sequence in a few minutes because god that was awful well okay can i start this off with my own very own hot take give me your own very own hot take we recently saw the movie for, for the second time, and I gotta say, it doesn't feel long anymore. Oh no, the, se- no, the second time through it didn't feel long at all, because I wasn't expecting it to end after every scene. I knew where it was going to end, and so I wasn't expecting it to end before that. Yeah, I mean, th- there is the weight of expectation on it, right? We probably talked about this in our last Last Jedi show. I forgot everything we talked about, so forgive me. Uh, That's why you should listen to our old shows. Oh, oh! who has the time? Thank you, listeners, for listening to our show, by the way. <laughs> it's just that there's so much expectation that this is going to be the empire of this new trilogy, and so they're going to do X, Y, and Z. And so then when they do X, Y, and Z, and then start to do things from Return of the Jedi, you know, like the elevator scene to go see the Emperor, I mean Supreme Leader, you know, you don't really know how far this is going to go. And so, yeah, there's that whole tension to it that you don't have seeing it again. Um, Elena, uh, did you get a chance to see the movie again, and how did the length feel to you? I did. I've seen it two more times, and I agree, it does seem to pick up speed on rewatch, and I have enjoyed the confrontation with Snoke and the Praetorian guards in the Red Room. I enjoyed it even more the second time, and even more the third time, because that's actually the middle of the piece, not the end. When we get there, I love it because I think it's fantastic. And then there's so much more movie still to go, but in a good way. Well, from a certain perspective, that scene is sort of the climax of the movie, like in a more technical sense, where, you know, the whole movie is Ray's sort of rapprochement with Kylo. Because the first thing she says is, you are a monster, you deserve to die. And then she starts, like, sort of empathizing with him, and then she decides, fuck you, Luke, I'm gonna go see Kylo. And that scene, after they fight the guards, is basically the climax of that whole sequence, where she's like, we killed Snoke, we fought the guards, come on, we can order the troops down, and we can save the Resistance. And Kylo is like, no, I don't want to do any of that. I I, I want to kill the Resistance. I, I, I want to command the First Order, not end it. And Ray is just like, oh, now we have to go back to fighting each other again. And then the oh, it, see, I don't think Kylo wants to command the First Order. I think he really does want to see it all burned down when he makes that offer to her. Like he's talking about ruling the galaxy, which freaks her out and is of no interest to her. But I don't think he wants to rule the galaxy from the high command of the First Order. Well, the First Order is sort of the mechanism by which he takes control of the galaxy. 
Sure, but like I think the first order is on the list of shit that he thinks should die. Well, certainly he doesn't have any regard for the people in the first order. No, but if yeah. he's going to take control of the galaxy, he needs like you know military and enforcers and all that sort of thing. Yeah, and the other thing is, I don't think he has that. I don't think he has a master plan when he makes that offer. I think it's coming from a really raw, really unplanned, like gut level feeling whatever it is we're about to do i want to do it with you to ray well he does seem to be kind of a raw unplanned kind of person yeah he like i was gonna say he doesn't seem like the kind of person who like really has master plans he's much more a reactive person exactly and we can see that from what however it actually went down between uh luke and kylo that was impulsive what he did crushing the the sleeping hut leaving luke in the rubble if he killed the other students or not, or it seems that he actually did. Um, impulse control is not his jam. Or breaking all the <laughs> shit, or slamming his mask into the elevator, or, uh, you know, numerous, numerous times we've seen it. Well, even in the first, even in The Force Awakens, you know, he spends like half that movie having emotional outbursts where he just breaks everything. So that's at least been consistent between the films. Right. Well, I'm mm-hmm. not. Sh- I'm not sure exactly how old he's supposed to be. But when he was training with Luke, he was definitely like a teenager, right? Mm-hmm. I think he was supposed to be. Yeah. So that that turn makes a little more sense as kind of an emo teenager writ large. Right. Yeah. Although he does learn Snoke's little tricks, because that's why he eventually turns on Snoke and kills him, because he realizes exactly how Snoke has been manipulating him. And we talked about that in the last episode, how Snoke, had the whole first scene is basically him negging Kylo into doing what he wants him to do, and, you know, abusing him into trying to please him. But mm-hmm. Kylo, as soon as Snoke is dead, Kylo turns around and does that exact same thing to Rey. And I did not notice that the first time we saw it, but the second time we saw it, it jumped out at me. Because the first thing he says to Rey after they kill all the guards, and he's like you know, join me and we can rule the galaxy. The first thing he says to her is, your parents are nobody. You're nobody. Nobody cares about you. You don't belong here. You don't belong in this story. You are nobody except to me. I care about you. You're somebody to me. He's doing the exact same thing to Ray that Snoke was doing to him, but it doesn't work on Ray. That's a really great insight, Scott. I like that. One thing I really enjoyed about that scene is that Ray fails in this movie as much as anyone else does. You know, Poe fails uh. a lot. Uh, Leia fails a couple of times. Ray fails to get Luke to come back with her to save the Resistance. And then she just shrugs and says, well, okay, fuck you. I'm going to go save the Resistance. And then she fails to turn Kylo. And then she fails to turn Kylo, and they blow up the lightsaber, and she basically goes, okay, fuck you, I'm gonna go save the Resistance. And Finn and Rose's plot fails, they never make it. Oh yeah, they fail completely. Yeah, everyone in this movie fails. Yeah, well, it is the Empire of the trilogy in that respect. I mean, Empire ended with a sense of manufactured triumph when they just managed to get away and Luke got a hand and they had the sweeping music at the end when they got back to the Rebel fleet. This movie, I mean, everybody fails and then the Resistance is left with only like a couple dozen people sitting around in the Millennium Falcon. Things are dark. There is no Rebel fleet. Mm-hmm. Well, that's true. 
And unless one of those people is carrying, like, crates of money like Han had in A New Hope, they're not exactly going to be able to buy lots of new ships from the casino people. Mm. Well, they keep finding every prop that anyone ever had in any of the old movies somewhere on the Millennium Falcon, so maybe they'll find all the money. <laughs> you think Unkar Plot left a bunch of money on there? Oh, uh, well, maybe Ankar Plot never figured out where all the smuggling crates and little cubby holes were. But now Chewie's there, so... Yeah, but now Chewie's there, and the Porgs are crawling through everything anyway. Porgs probably ate the money. Oh, no! Well, that proves that this isn't the Empire of the Peace, because those Porgs are crawling around everywhere, and not one of them broke the hyperdrive. <laughs> Yeah, true. Uh, the, the hyperdrive didn't have mechanical failures. Uh, this movie was just very concerned about fuel. I don't know. I'm stuck on what Scott was saying about the movie being in a dark place. Or was that Glenn who said it was in a dark place? One of y'all said uh, it. At, at the just, end, yeah. Things, things are not a, going great. But I just, I felt this unbelievable rush of hope, actually. Um, it's in the confrontation between Luke and Kylo. It's after Luke's dialogue circles back and says, amazing, everything that you just said was wrong. And he says, the resistance is reborn today. The war is just beginning. And it's like cutting to different people's faces away from Luke. And I will not be the last Jedi. And I just felt this amazing rush to hear him say that, even though there's only like 40 of them now. One of them is Ray. Well, the whole ending is sort of predicated on it, because that's what they do at the end, is they have Leia say that they have everything they need to rebuild the Rebellion, and then they show that kid on Cantobrite, who, you know, has the Luke Skywalker action figure and the Resistance decoder ring that he got out of the Cracker Jack box or whatever, and he's holding his... Did you catch he calls the broom away from the wall? Yeah. Did you guys see that? I read about that online, and I was looking for it when we saw it the other night, and I still didn't see it. I, I definitely I, saw it. Yeah, I got that when we saw it on opening night. I'm kind of... It's kind of weird to me that that would be a surprise. I was looking for it the last time, and I still didn't see it. Uh, oh, yeah, he's to he's totally, you know, the next generation of Jedi. Oh, Like, that one, I felt the cheddar in my ears looking at that, but I still liked it. <laughs> you know? See, that sort of plays into also one of the points about all the online petitions about, you know... How could Ray be nobody? How can you make Ray nobody? I demand you change this so that Ray isn't nobody. The whole point is that, like, there are Jedi's other than Anakin Skywalker's descendants. Like, literally, he is not the only Jedi, and only his children and grandchildren can be Jedi. There used to be, like, a million of the motherfuckers, and it was part of their code not to procreate. So they had to come from somewhere. Other than the loins of Anakin Skywalker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I really hate that. And I've read that a few places and it just immediately makes me like go read something else. Just, I, I hate that so much. This idea that, you know, because Rey's parents weren't Skywalkers or because Rey's parents weren't Kenobi, that makes Rey nobody. And how can you make the main character nobody? No, 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 no. Ray's parents were nobody. Ray isn't nobody. Ray is Ray. She's the fucking hero of the trilogy. She's a Jedi. She traveled across the galaxy to go see Luke Skywalker, and then she turned herself in in a mission to try to redeem Kylo Ren. 
She's not nobody. She's Ray. That's the whole point of this fucking movie series. Do you feel any kind of sort of misogynist whisper in a refusal to accept that Ray, a woman, can be born force gifted and have that be significant without it having to do with a male bloodline? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm sure there's some of that, but I think there's a lot of it that's not even... At least not consciously. I mean, I mean, who knows what goes on in the backs of people's minds? There's all sorts of, you know, the cultural milieu we're raised with never really leaves sure. us. But I honestly think it's some people that just can't get through their minds that, like, we should care about a character who isn't related to another character that we also care about. That seems to literally be their point of view. Like, you know, how can you make Ray the main character when she's nobody? And they keep saying that. It's like, no, just because her parents are nobody doesn't mean she's nobody. She is herself. She, this comes back, this comes back to when you were in college and you were an objectivist. Oh, Jesus, do we have to talk about objectivism? And this is the understanding I gathered of objectivism from you spouting out off about it for several years. And granted, it's probably somewhat inaccurate. And it must be incomplete because I honestly don't understand how objectivism could exist with this as one of its tenets. But one of the things you said to me once in promoting an objectivist variety of egoism, you said to me that every person is an end in and of themselves. That's one of the tenets of the philosophy, yes. And somehow objectivism takes that idea and then reaches the conclusion, therefore the only one I should care about is me and not any of the seven billion other ends in and of themselves that I share the planet with. And I don't understand how that happens. But I always remembered that line. Every person is important in and of themselves. Every person has value in and of themselves. I don't understand how that tenet comes from objectivism, but it does, and it's a good tenet. And Ray is a person, and she is important in and of herself. Not because of who her parents were, not because of who she's descended from. She is important because of who she is, and what she does, and how she feels, and how she acts, and what she accomplishes. Um, okay... To kind of close the book on the philosophy segment right here, uh, the idea that each person is an end in and of themselves, in addition to Rand, is an idea that's also espoused uh, significantly in the history of philosophy by Immanuel Kant, uh, who reached the exact opposite conclusions and had a lot to say about altruism, <laughs> actually. That's also a ton of Unitarian Universalism. Ah. Just a quick shout out to that incredibly progressive church. I never did understand how objectivism could believe a thing like every single person is an end in and of themselves and then somehow reach the conclusion, therefore, I should only care about me and not any of the other seven billion ends I share the planet with. That was a fundamental disconnect in my mind, but I always remembered that line. It is a fundamental disconnect. No argument here. Well... I am often not particularly great at representing the ideas of people I disagree with, even when they were people and ideas that I quite definitely agreed with about 15 years ago. But I believe that each person being an end in and of themselves for objectivists looped into the idea that, therefore, each person requires political freedom, which means selfishness and capitalism, uh, which is the conclusion that all 
all roads lead to Rome, all roads lead to selfish capitalism in objectivism, but that's neither here nor there in Star Wars, right? Except um, for all the people on Canto Bikes. Yeah, I was gonna say! <laughs> it's amazing how they're so obsessed with political freedom and don't give a flying fuck about economic freedom. Uh-huh, uh-huh. They define economic freedom differently than you do. Early in my leftward conversion, I mentioned the idea of freedom from economics to someone, and they just like started furiously shaking their head at me. <laughs> I, I, I believe we were talking about healthcare in the very early days of the last administration. Uh, but that's neither here nor there in Star Wars, because, you know, people get the healthcare they need in Star Wars, right? They got back to tanks and shit. Yeah, they got a lot of them on Jakku for Unkar Plutz slaves. Well, no, probably not. Okay, I'm interested. Apparently Scott has a notebook. <laughs> well, we're supposed... We normally have notes going into these shows, so we're not just spitballing for two hours. But when we do these like immediate reaction shows, we just sort of wing it. And I never really like those. I, I, I think this is what we do better. You know, this sort of, like, considered analysis and reviewing the thing a couple of times to generate ideas and see how everything connects. And this sort of, you know, more in-depth analysis of it than just, like, an immediate reaction. I think this is what we do a lot better. You know? Hit me with your points and questions. Well, the main thing I took away from my second viewing... I mean, other than just, like, noticing some things I didn't notice before and reinforcing some opinions I had before, but we talked in the last episode about how the whole Canto Bright sequence seems a little tonally off from the rest of the movie. And watching it a second time, the Canto Bright sequence, I think, is god-awful in a lot of ways. And not only that, but really the way they treat Finn in this entire movie is really bad. Other than his fight with Phasma, he really gets just dumped on like the first thing he does is try to escape again which opens up a whole bunch of questions because when rose captures him she calls him like a deserter and a traitor by what right does she call him a traitor who is he betraying he's not a member of the resistance i think it's assumed he joined the resistance first of all he just showed up like yesterday The only thing he did was, like, try to get them to let him go rescue Rey. And now he's leaving the ship to try to go save Rey. Yeah, first of all, he has a very valid point that they need to get this beacon away from the trap so that Rey doesn't follow the beacon home and wind up being captured. That is an entirely valid point that he has. And for all he knows, she's bringing Luke Skywalker. I didn't even think of that, but that is an excellent point as well. For all he knows, she's bringing Luke Skywalker. Better for them to arrive somewhere not in the middle of this First Order trap. Second of all, exactly when did he sign on with the Resistance? What are the enlistment terms of the Resistance? By what right does she call him a traitor when he's not a member of the Resistance? He's more like a refugee. And refugees are free to leave if they don't want to have refuge there anymore. Okay. Are they free to take resources from the ship, though? Yeah, true. They, you know, I mean, they're in the trap. They might need those, those escape pods. I don't get the... I mean, impl- I think, like, whatever he was doing was a secret, so he didn't tell anyone, and that's a problem. I mean, how you maintain order in an environment like that is you have people doing stuff that was ordered. 
Even if, like, I hear what you're saying. Like, all, all we have established is that Finn deserted the First Order. That doesn't necessarily mean that he entered the Resistance, at least from a military perspective. But, like, he can't just take, he can't take the ship. Like, he can't take the pod. You know? Okay, you can make that argument, yeah. That he's, like, trying to steal resources or something like that. That's I mean, they're not, they're not his. And if he's not in the Resistance, they're really not his. And he's still... I mean, his first instinct is still to run. Yeah, which is not a good look for him at all, considering he tried to do that in the last movie. Like, everything, a lot of the stuff he does in this movie is exactly what he did in the last movie. He tries to run away, but then he gets sucked back in, and, and he finds, like, a... He's very focused on Ray. He's very focused on Ray again. And, and then he gets, like, sucked back in, and, like, he winds up on this mission that he gets sucked into almost against his will... It's it's very very similar, but consistent. I would say. I didn't mind how they set him up, and especially like I didn't mind him being initially impressed by the Kanto Bright thing because he's used to the Starkiller base. Like they heavily imply that he was on there from his birth. Well, the, you know that he never saw anything else. The whole Kanto Bright sequence is see. I'm not necessarily opposed to class warfare, you know, eat the rich and all that. Yay. But class warfare, when it's done really ham-handedly and really facile, it's just cringeworthy. You have to put some thought into it. You have to, like, you can't just say, oh, look, these people are rich, therefore they must be evil, you know? Well, look, look at these people. They're having fun in a casino while elsewhere in the galaxy people are struggling. Therefore, let me make the point though. How do you get that rich? What industry are you in? You could be in a million industries. How many people? Of what percentage that of people rich. in Las Vegas? Or not even Las Vegas. Las Vegas is like the plebeian gambling capital. What percentage of people in Monaco right now do you think are arms dealers? Versus, like, stock investors, or movie stars, or, you know, plus... The things that that make you really, really, really rich, arms dealing, human trafficking, drugs, like, those things have have human cost. And so does stock trafficking. Why do they make you really, really rich? Because the resources in question are dangerous to acquire and trade. Okay, and what do Finn and Rose do in that Canto Bright sequence to combat the systems that make these people super rich at the expense of others? They knock over some tables in the casino. Ooh, that'll take like an hour to fix, and then those people will go right on with whatever they were doing. Yeah, they have a six-hour timeline. They're in a hurry. I mean, Finn even says when they're about to be captured. They don't have time to occupy Canto Bright. When they're about to be captured, Finn says it was worth it to knock over those casino tables and mess up their gambling night, wasn't it? No, it was worth it. No, and like, no, it wasn't. That will literally inconvenience them for like ten minutes while they go gamble in the other room. No, they're talking. That's so not worth anything. The, the creatures. They're talking about the release of the creatures. They don't release any creatures. That's what Rose says yep. next. She pulls the saddle off one of the creatures and says, there, now it was worth it. Oh, that creature won't have a saddle on it for like the 30 minutes it's going to take for them to recapture it. Good job, no, it Rose. It ran to a herd. Did you see that? It ran to a, a, a herd of free ones. Yeah, it ran, it ran to the herd that they just led out of the stable or whatever. 
How long will it take the authorities to recapture them all? I don't know. Wow, they're pretty big. Well, yes. Uh, our heroes have not yet seized the means of production. That's correct. They've literally done nothing. They, they've done the equivalent of glare bombing a guy. Like, ooh, that'll inconvenience them momentarily. Good they job, have, class they warrior. They didn't have five years to conduct the Russian Revolution. They had six hours. They're on a deadline, Scott. They can't do that much fuck shit before they get out. I mean, it would be awesome if in episode nine they seized the means of production. Ten out of ten would see. I thought that's what they did in episode six. <laughs> well. <Wow. laughs> yeah. I mean, here here's my reaction to that, Scott. Like, does it have a tone problem? It definitely sort of does. We we all remarked on that in the first version of this, as you noticed. But, like, is it sort of ham-fisted and, like... Is it kind of like hitting it too hard, maybe? Um, my feeling about that is that Star Wars has always been pretty trope-heavy. You know, the storytelling is pretty on the nose. And how I've come to, to feel about the casino storyline is it actually is an opportunity to insert some sense of moral ambiguity into the Star Wars story, which traditionally has been super black and white, good guys and bad guys, and that's it. And the going to Canto Bright introduces us to Benicio Del Toro's character, who is called DJ, although I don't think they ever say that on screen, but apparently, according to the internet, the character's name is DJ. We meet that guy, and he gets to make a bunch of suggestions that are new and disturbing in the Star Wars universe, that it's not only the First Order that buys and sells weapons, and also that good guys and bad guys are a machine, like you roll the dice and, it, you know, who, today you win, uh, tomorrow you lose kind of situation. Very gray. All those things are new ideas in the Star Wars universe. Like, are they new in human storytelling? They're not, but they they lend, I think, a complementary sensibility to the other storyline, which is Luke saying, sure, the Jedi um, are balancing the Force, but, like, there's way more going on than just the Jedi are good and the Sith are bad. Like, that reductionist thinking has led to nothing but trouble in the centuries of Jedi. I ended up liking it more every time, even though the first time it really struck me as awkward. You know what? Thinking about it now, DJ, I guess, again, they never say that on screen, but Benicio Del Toro's whole point there is basically almost like a rebuttal to what Rose says at the beginning. Because Rose is like, you know, look at these people. They're so rich. The only way they became this rich was by selling arms to the First Order. They're they're awful and evil and disgusting. And Benicio Del Toro's like, no, these people are too rich to care who wins. They sell to whoever's buying. So, exactly. So he's almost rebutting her. But I still vehemently, vehemently object to the idea that, like, knocking over some of the casino tables and letting the animal out for, like, the hour it takes them to round them back up again is some sort of blow for the proletariat. I don't know. Like, there could be more to see about that. And also, what are they talking about when they say it was worth it? What do you think they were talking about? Well, Finn says it was worth it, wasn't it, to... I forget the exact line, but something like, you know, to inconvenience them or to mess up their casino or something. Tear up the town. Yeah, that was it, yeah. So he's specifically referencing, you know, the vandalism they accomplished by, like, breaking the window and knocking over the table and disrupting the casino and letting the animals out. Which, like I said, 
for people this rich and not even the people that rich, but the people whose entire jobs and livelihoods are catering to the people that rich, that won't inconvenience them for very long and it won't affect literally anything that actually matters. I don't know. I mean, if you think about political demonstrations or other maybe commensurate acts, like are people permanently inconvenienced by marches or demonstrations or riots or like, no, like they're cleaned up the next day or the day after, but they become part of the cultural story. Like, are they going to remember the time that all the dot, like all the, whatever the fuck they are, Favier's um, tore through the casino? Like, even though they clean it, are they going to remember? They might. And is it going to chip away at the entire situation? Maybe only the way water erodes caves, like fractionally, and it will take so much more time. Well, with any luck, that dude with the thing on his lapel was explaining it to a reporter when the Fothier fell through the window, and it became a <laughs> meme video on Star Wars Galactic Internet. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think it accomplishes discussion, it sheds light on the issue, even if it doesn't result in immediate policy change. Like, these things take they, they take so much time. And once again, like I said, they had six hours. And again, it, it was sort of an improvised technique to... It was hugely improvised, yeah. To get away from one situation and not like an organized protest movement to, uh, like Alana said, occupy Cantobite. Like, here's what I think they're talking about. What do they actually need to get out of whatever compound they were under the casino? They actually only needed, they only needed to steal... One Fothier. Instead, they let them all out. They took an extra whatever minute and passed the ring to the kid and convinced him not to call the popo. They spent a little bit of extra time to let all of the Fothiers out. And I really think that that's what they're talking about. Like, these rich blowhards don't get to watch these animals race for X amount of days because they have to round them up again. Like, and even though we're under a time crunch, we're going to take an extra moment to do this because these animals deserve better. And it's a small, tiny little thing, but and, and the other thing is it gave a vent to Rose's decades of rage towards these people and what they represent. I think part of the reason I just didn't enjoy it the first time I saw it was that it, there was so much CGI, and I'm allergic to overuse of CGI because of the prequel trilogy. Yeah. I'm just like, my eyeballs get itchy looking at all the CGI. <laughs> Although it's in better shape than it was in the prequel trilogy, but I guess, you know, 15 years will do that. I think the thing that bugs me the most, apart from the sort of ham-handed and facile handling of the entire issue, is just Finn's line when they're about to be recaptured, and he's like, well, it was worth it because we got to tear up their town. It just strikes me in such the wrong way because that's what people say about, like, meaningless bullshit in real life, you know? Oh, we glitter-bombed a guy. That was worth it. We made someone look foolish during an interview. That was totally worth our... That, that, that was a good thing and worth our effort. Like, that accomplished something. Mm. It just entirely rubs me the wrong way when people accomplish nothing and then pat themselves on the back for it as if they've accomplished something. Well, they also affected their own escape. Well, they didn't realize that at that point. At that point, they thought they were about to be recaptured. Oh, that's true, Trump card. 
that's why they were going, having the whole conversation was, well, we're going to be recaptured, but it was worth it, wasn't it? Because we got to tear up the casino? Well, they also thought they were going to be recaptured and therefore not meet the code breaker and not break into the Star Destroyer and not save the Resistance. But it was worth it because they knocked over some tables and broke a window and let the Fathers go free. Oh, possibly. Another read on it is possibly it's worth the, like, we started our night with a parking violation and we're definitely about to get in way more trouble. And it was worth it. Oh, yeah. Can we talk about how utterly, incomprehensibly fucking stupid they are to do a parking violation on the casino planet of the ultra-rich? Yeah, that was pretty look, stupid. Look, look, they're, they're in a hurry, okay? They're they're not thinking like everything they through. They couldn't have landed the ship somewhere off to the side? They had to put it right in the middle of the fucking beach? <laughs> no, you gotta go. Get it done now, now, now. Actually, one thing that did bug me is when the Canto Bright Popo shoot the ship, and Finn's reaction is, oh, come on, in kind of a throwaway way, as though that <laughs> isn't an absolutely catastrophic cutoff of their exit. I felt he was a little bit casual about that. Well, maybe he was remarking on the fact that the same thing happened in the last movie. Possibly. <laughs> Possibly. Well, that's what Finn said about Benicio Del Toro when they got on the ship at the end, right? The garbage will do. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, and speaking of character names that apparently exist, even though they're never said on camera, like every one of those kids has a name, and probably every one of the fathers has a name, but... Darth BB-8 has a name, too. Darth BB-8 has a name. Darth BB-8 is called BB-9E. Sure. And that that was actually mentioned in a comment on the page for our first podcast. Somebody left that in the discuss comments. Which oh, people, oh, really? Which people don't use enough, frankly. Shit, I forgot to check that. I'm sorry. Yeah, people need to use that more because like all the discussion winds up happening on Facebook, and I don't use Facebook. So I, I like when people actually comment on the webpage. Well, thanks, whoever that was that corrected our Darth BB-8. BB-9E, huh? I didn't write down the name of the person that commented, but yeah, it was BB9E. I had read that somewhere before, but I added that to my notes. I read it in the comments. Uh, yeah, that was Rick Willard on the uh, placetobenation.com page for our last episode. Thanks, Rick. I'm still going to call him Darth BB8. <laughs> it is a much funner name. I can't wait to see his entire backstory. And his, like, 17 different action figures. We shouldn't be giving him a gender. Well, oh, he does have a ball. I... <laughs> you know, if you took BB-8 and BB-9E and, like, hooked them together with a chain around their necks, you could, like, hang them off your pickup truck bumper? That's mechanical essentialism. <laughs> <laughs> I read a nice piece about Finn's arc in The Last Jedi, taking him from a place of being just okay, I defected from the First Order, now what? Into being completely bought in into the Resistance. Like, when he looks over, uh, you know, Ph Phasma says he's scum, and he looks down and says, rebel scum. And that's, like, the cherry on his little storyline right there, is he's finally totally bought in. And I found that really satisfying, and I was able to pick that out when I saw it again. Yeah, that is basically his arc. That's sort of his crowning moment where, when he claims that label for himself. And then you see that later in the battle on Crate, where he's sort of, you know, rallying the troops and encouraging people to fight. 
I think almost every major character has an actual arc, like an actual point A to point B, which I found to be nice attention to the script. Several of them do. I know Finn does, Poe, we talked about Poe's storyline. Mm-hmm. Ray obviously has a lot of focus. Kylo obviously has a lot of focus, but... Even Haldo has one. Luke has one. Kylo's got one. Well, Even Hold- stupid Snoke has one. Haldo's arc is more about other people's misconceptions about her. Yeah, that counts, though, from a storytelling perspective, if you ask me. While we're talking about the battle on Crate, I have two questions. Sort of questions. When mm-hmm. Finn is about to doomsday machine himself into the Death Star gun to blow it up, which, by the way, in my mind, thinking about this, they have a battering ram that Finn says is basically a mini Death Star gun, like, absent the giant spheroid space station that is normally built around Death Star guns, and they also mentioned the Darksaber project in Rogue One, and the novel Darksaber was about... Imperial Remnants trying to build a Death Star gun without the giant station around it. Oh, nice. You know what else they mentioned in Rogue One when Jin was in the uh, super-secret science place? Hyperspace tracking. Did they? Yeah. Nice. That is really nice. Here's my question. When Finn was going to crash himself right down the barrel of that Death Star gun, would that have actually destroyed the gun? Because if the answer is yes, then I would argue that Rose should have let him do it. I mean, I think I think we can strongly argue that strategically Rose should have let him do it. I mean, if he was just suicide missioning himself because he's a little bit deranged about fighting the First Order because of his history, then she did the absolute right thing. But if he could have actually destroyed that gun or disabled that gun and none of their other weapons could crack that bunker that they had just finished talking about how impenetrable the bunker is, if he could have destroyed the only weapon capable of breaking into that bunker, she should have absolutely let him do it. Yeah. No arguments here from a purely strategic standpoint. But the part where it falls into the message of the film as a whole is that the Resistance kept paying unbelievably high casualties for low-yield enterprises. I mean, that, I think, would be too stereotypical a Star Wars solution. The Star Wars solution is always to have a mad run at the big important piece of technology. And to take out that one important piece of technology, and then you've won. Well, they basically shit on that at the beginning of the movie, where Poe is all about, we need to take out the Dreadnought, we can destroy a Dreadnought, we can knock out the Dreadnought, and he, like, loses his entire fleet, because he refuses to give up this fight against the Dreadnought. Yep. Yeah, exactly, and in much the same way that this movie is deconstructing a lot of the Star Wars tropes, such as the Skywalker family is the only important one, it's also kind of thumbing its nose a little bit at the idea that all you have to do is take out one important piece of technology. Interesting. Interesting point. By the way, can I just say, on second viewing, dropping bombs in zero gravity is just too unbelievably, unforgivably stupid for me. It's really stupid. I don't know. I caught on that, too. 
But if we act like we don't understand anything about physics or space, which we often do in Star Wars, we have yeah. zero relationship with actual physics, the acting, pacing, cinematography, and everything about the opening act and the performance from that actress I think is amazing. Even though her little premise is stupid. Yeah. Also, the ships don't fall, right? Like, when they're hit by something, they don't fall. But somehow the bombs do. No, I mean, like, they show the ships falling out of their flight path. Like, that would also not occur in actual uh, space. Okay, but, well, um, you know. I think that's... You can explain that away easier with, like, you know, they lose their stabilizers or, like, their position mm. maintenance station keeping rockets are, like, going haywire because the control system is broken. Or you can explain that away. Or they're impacted by another ship and they don't have a command crew to make adjustments to the course anymore because they're all blowing up. I'm willing I think to... if they'd made a small script adjustment and described all those things as missiles, we could have gotten away with it a little better. Like, assumed that they were all powered individually. Something. Yeah. Oh, well. Okay, I have, I have one last question about the Finn and Rose storyline. And then I promise we can move on to other topics. Rose, at the end, proclaims her love for Finn and kisses him right before she passes out from blood loss or blunt force trauma or whatever. I just want to go back to the timeline of these things. Because it was like three days ago that Finn showed up. And somehow in that time, he's become the legendary Finn. Like, this morning, when she was mourning the death of her sister... She only knew of the legendary Finn who defected from the First Order. Then she found out he was a traitor and a deserter. And then they went on this mission. And now she's in love. That seems like an awfully fast falling in love. Well, she's in movie love. Still. Also, adrenaline is a potent, potent aphrodisiac. I have no problem believing that. None at all. I just... That whole scene started to ring hollow in my mind when I realized that, like, she literally met him, like, this morning. You know? She thought she was going to die. Go for it. Get that fuzz. I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I'm just nitpicking because, like I said, if I don't think... If I thought th I was about to die and John Boyega's face is right there, I'd go for it, too. I don't think that... Like yeah, I said... Same. <laughs> See? Like I said, I don't think this movie treats Finn very well, so maybe I'm just overly nitpicking his entire storyline now. He's fine, he's just not the emphasis. They got other stuff going on. Although this is a good place where we could transition into discussing the Ray finn rose love triangle. I think it's time oh. to take a break and hear from the other uh, shows on the Place to Be Network. Nice dodge. <laughs> Alright, fine! Fine. You want to talk about the damn love triangle? Go. What do you have to say? Hashtag there isn't one. Permission to host this podcast aggressively. <laughs> per permission to treat you as a hostile guest. Well, we could also talk about the Finn, Ray, Kylo love triangle. No. Which is like adjacent to the Ray, Finn, Rose love triangle. It's like adjacent tri it's like the side angle side theorem of love triangles it's like the love bisected diamond uh ray isn't in love with anyone i've decided this did you see that scene at the end where finn is putting the blanket on rose and ray is like looking at it like longingly and a little sad like oh he's with her now no not at all 
No, Not like, oh, my friend is very concerned for this person. I don't know, I think she's pretty jealous in that moment. I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. I think she's in... I think she feels friendship, actually, for Finn. Yeah, definitely. And Finn has been brainwashed from birth by the First Order. I mean, he might just be asexual, right? Yeah, I don't think Finn... I actually don't think Finn necessarily has... I mean, I don't think he has feelings for Rose, and I don't know if he really has particularly developed feelings for Ray. Like, it's just it's just not part of it. Well, he has... And it's hard to parse, because we're so infrequently offered women characters who have their own shit going on and who have perspectives that are not driven by the male gaze. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Finn has a fierce attachment to her, just like he has a fierce attachment to Poe. Yeah. You don't think he has feelings for Rose? You're saying he's going to break her heart at the beginning of the next movie? Oh, I'm saying I, putting a blanket on a sick person is not... That's an act of human compassion that doesn't have to have sex on it. This is the movie! Every act of human compassion has to have sex on it. <laughs> Even in the Disney machine. <laughs> Especially in the Disney machine! Oh, look! Well, I found this that's person just... that's been cursed! And, and they're in the middle of the woods, and they're unconscious because they've been cursed. Let me rescue the person. Obviously, we have to get married now. That's the Disney machine! That's what they're built wow. on! That's true. That's dark as hell. All right, Scott. <laughs> Is Rose the latest Disney princess? <laughs> I'd be into that, actually. Well, no, actually, now that the deal's going through, Agent Scully is the latest Disney princess. Does Disney buying Fox mean that we get the 20th century fanfare back on the Star Wars movies? I hope so. The main title fanfare without the 20th century Fox fanfare feels a little blank. Wow. Interesting. Okay, now that we've vetoed the love quadrangle of doom, I think it really is time to hear about the other shows on the Place to Be podcast network. We will be right back after hearing about those. consideration paid for by the following hey pro wrestling announcer kevin kelly here i want to make sure you are all subscribed to all the great feeds here at place to be nation it's really easy to do just head to itunes or your preferred podcatcher app today and search and subscribe to the place to be nation wrestling feed which of course includes the full archives of the kevin kelly show the place to be nation pod feed and the pro wrestling only feed Subscribe, listen, and then rate us and leave feedback today. And be sure to give Justin your true thoughts. I mean, don't hold back. After all, he is kind of a jerk. Just listen to Scott. Scott. 
Wasted Nations, JT Rosero and Chad Campbell here. We want to let you know that we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and PlayStation.com, and we offer those to you on three great feeds. On the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed, we bring you the Mothership, the original Place to Be podcast, as well as main event to Lucha Afterground and our monthly pay-per-view reaction shows, as well as the Our Vantage Point podcast and Jeff Learns Wrestling. In addition to these full-length shows, we also deliver quick-hit pod blasts on topics old and new. Over on the Pro Wrestling Only feed, we dive deep inside the wrestling business with a stacked army of experts leading the way. The feed features potpourri shows such as This Week in Wrestling, Greetings from Allentown, Psychology is Dead, Puro Puri, Stacy and Elliot's Bogus Journey, and the Military Industrial Suplex. We also have shows that focus intently on certain topics like Letters from Center Stage, Space City, and NWA Classics On Demand Adventure, Through the Years, Strong Style History, Strong Style Story, and Mount Olympus. Plus, the feed has the full archives of legendary shows like Titans of Wrestling, Where the Big Boys Play, Letters from Kayfabe, and much more. And on our popular Place to Be Nation Pop podcast feed, we offer such great shows as the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, Rank and File, PTBN Dadcast, Go Home in a Box, NBA Team, and Lucha Undead, as well as a vertible podcast heaven for comics fans with the hard-traveling fanboys, Sellers Points, Todd Weber's Conversation, Geek and Sassy, and Imaginary Stories Podcasts. You can find all of these current shows plus archives of our past podcasts, including the Kevin Kelly Show, as well by subscribing to all of our feeds on iTunes. And while there, be sure to rate and leave feedback as well. All of these shows plus others available on PlacementNation.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus in-depth stretch projects and more. Be sure to support our site by using PlacementNation.com backslash Amazon when shopping online and download our free PTB Vintage Vault Refresh eBooks via the links on our site. We also want to thank our friends at Boneheads Wing Bar in West Warwick, Rhode Island and Fall River, Massachusetts, TheHistoryOfWrestling.com, and Scott Keats' Blog of Doom. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlacementNation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. are back. There's one thing that I'm wondering about, having seen The Last Jedi a couple of times. Why is Maz Kanata in this movie? I have no earthly idea. Honestly, if I had to guess, there might be something about a contract. Maybe. I mean, maybe they just needed to shoehorn Lupita Nyong'o in the movie. And I, I'm not opposed to shoehorning Lupita Nyong'o into a movie, but it, it seems just a little tacked on. And we were talking about the uh, whole class war dynamic. Her comment about uh, her uh, union dispute felt a little... Yeah, is she union busting? Yeah, that, that seemed a little 
odd, especially oh. considering the First Order shot up her bar, like, two days ago. That's what I was gonna say! You gotta remember the timeline! Her whole place that had been open for a thousand years just got destroyed, like, two days ago, and now she has a union dispute? What, because she had to fire everyone because she doesn't have a bar anymore? That is interesting. And one of the last ladies you'd think was union busting. And then she was there just to make a sex joke, which was a little awkward. And then also it it was really strongly video game e, because she was literally a quest giver, <laughs> like. Yeah. Plus, wasn't Han the one that knew her? That's why they went to see her because Han knew her. Oh. Yeah, but now Finn knows her. That's convenient. I sure. Mean, I guess. <laughs> but like, literally, she serves almost no purpose. Like. They could have found out about a codebreaker literally any other way. Like, I met a codebreaker once, or there's a codebreaker we worked with on a mission a couple of years ago, and here's how we get in contact with him, you know? Mm. Unless they were literally just trying to shove Lupita Nyong'o into the movie somewhere. I really don't understand why she's there. They might have been. I don't know. I don't know this for sure. I mean, the union comment probably is not literal, right? <laughs> I mean, it's probably important not to take that too seriously. Also, she could be on the other side of it. I don't know, the way she said it's a union dispute. Well, maybe she works for the union, and she's having a union dispute? I don't know, she, she's... I mean, up until a couple of days ago, though, she was pretty clearly management. Well, maybe it's not the union of people at her bar. Maybe she, like is employed by a union of people working somewhere else. And she has time to go, like, moonlight with them now that her bar got blown up. Yeah, there are a lot yeah, of... Maybe she's a pro maybe she's a professional picket line enforcer. Maybe someone tapped her. Yeah, maybe, maybe she's using her jetpack to, like, kill the scabs or something. <laughs> <laughs> she kept the giant inflatable rat in the basement of her uh, casino. Uh, her bar. Yeah, it's also kind of a departure. Like, last movie, she, like, ran a bar and was unusually insightful and had a lot of contacts, and now she has, like, a jetpack and a laser gun. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, everyone's got shades and complexities. I liked her. I mean, I don't mind seeing her, but yeah, she was literally just a quest giver. It was an escort quest, like, from World of Warcraft. <laughs> mm. <laughs> well, Uther Lightbringer Benicio Del Toro was not. He was good, too. That guy, he's so weird. It really works. And that beautiful directing choice to have him step into the frame with his back turned. And he's still in the First Order uniform. Somehow the First Order uniform, which they're all wearing, it looks so much more sinister on him. It's very interesting. Well, it looked a little different on him than it did, especially on John Boyega, because Benicio Del Toro had his whole... Uh... Not even 5 o'clock shadow, like 9 o'clock shadow going on. That's true. I saw one article that referred to him as Space Fenster. I thought that was reasonably accurate. <laughs> Can we talk about the timeline in this movie for a minute? Because the whole thing seems to take place over such a small period of time. Like, literally, the Resistance ships are running away from the First Order ships for the entire length of the movie. And I think they say at one point they only have 18 hours of fuel left. So this movie is not taking place over a long period of time. It's like a day. Right. However, it seems like several days pass on the Jedi Island. Because she gets there, 
And then Luke goes in his place and she like camps out in front of his door. And then she catches him in the morning when he goes out to collect food. And then it's like oh, night shit. again. And then it's night again and Chewie breaks in. And then it's night when he goes and sneaks onto the Falcon. And then there's a night where Chewie is cooking the porgs. And then it's and then it's day where he's giving her lessons, and then it's night again when she does the force connection with Kylo, and then it's day when he does a lesson, and then it's night again when she goes to the dark side cave. Like, I'd have to watch the movie again and count, but it seems like several, several days pass on that Jedi Island during this 18 oh hours God, they're running I, out of fuel. You're right. That is an unassailable plot hole. That is not addressed correctly. Holy shit. Yeah, I mean... I'm sure there's stuff you could do with, like, time dilation or something, but I think it's important not to apply too much science to Star Wars. <laughs> no, you're so right. And I, I didn't catch it. Yeah, I only noticed that in the second viewing. But yeah, there's several knights in there. Wow. Whoops. Yeah, I got, I got nothing to say to that. It's it's a, an actual logical fail. Yeah, I guess I didn't really spark a discussion. <laughs> <laughs> Quick, let's call Neil deGrasse Tyson and have him design a way out of this one, but I don't think he can. <laughs> you know, I don't know. You could probably fudge it somehow. Science is weird enough, but the only thing you can't fudge is dropping bombs in space. Oi, all right. <laughs> That's my flag, snowman. That's where I say no moss. Yeah, okay. Oh, also, I don't know if I made this point before. This has been part of the Star Wars universe for a while, but you can't hear explosions in space. Wow, that's sort of every sci-fi movie. Yeah, I mean, every movie has sound in space, except Serenity, I guess. Just saying. I think Battlestar Galactica did that, right? They kept it silent in outer space. That was, like, the only thing that did? Yeah, the new Battlestar Galactica, yeah. Well, not so new anymore, I guess. <laughs> did we talk about on the last show the fact that, like, apparently everyone has fucking lightsabers now? Like, the Stormtroopers have lightsabers, the uh, Snoke Guards have lightsabers, Finn and Rose were gonna be executed with what was, like, sort of a lightsaber. When did everyone get lightsabers? Is that, like, Snoke's thing? Maybe. I mean... The Jedi can't slaughter us all if we give everyone a lightsaber? Well, the Stormtrooper lightsaber-like things were more of, like, a perversion of lightsabers to turn them into, like, actual military weapons. Yeah. Well, I'm not saying they all have the exact same thing that Jedis build. I'm saying that nobody else in any previous Star Wars has had a weapon that could, like wouldn't be sliced in two by a lightsaber. Yeah. Like, these things generate an energy blade that can clash with a lightsaber blade. That's the first time we've seen right. anything other than a lightsaber do that. Yeah, well, I get And the... everyone fucking has them. Yeah, well, I get the impression that Snoke is a little more uh, loose with that stuff than Palpatine ever was. But it also has to do with the strength of the Jedi Order at the time of the reign of these two leaders as well. Like, it was important for Darth Sidious to act respectful towards the Jedi because he was staging a coup from within. And at the point that Snoke is in charge, the Jedi are practically extinct. There's no pomp and circumstance to uphold 
for political reasons anymore. It's more like dressing in the trappings of your fallen enemy to kind of make a point. Plus, during the Imperial era, they were using every kyber crystal they could find to power Death Stars. Well, I was, True. I was going to say, during the Imperial era, the Jedi were not a threat. There yeah. were no Jedi other than Anakin Skywalker, as far as anyone knew. Mm. Snoke, when he's building his power, he knows Luke Skywalker is out there. He knows Luke could train more Jedi or just attack him directly. So he has to develop a way to defend his forces against Luke Skywalker and possibly other Jedi, which is not a worry that Emperor had. Yeah. One of the things that I've seen people disappointed in in this movie is the fact that Snoke has come and gone and we don't know a damn thing about who he is and where he came from. I'm sure there's a novel about it. I mean, I'm sure. But people are also complaining about how long the movie is, and I don't know if he could have stopped in the middle of, you know, force-pushing Rey all around the room and setting her up for execution to do, like, a Bond villain monologue about his backstory. I don't think that would have fit very well. You know, young Ray, I am Darth Plagueis. Like, no, that's okay. I don't need that. I'm all right. <laughs> right. I was okay with that, too. It's missing, but who cares? I think people get too hung up on backstories. Like, and I think it's a consequence of, like, sort of the way a lot of television has been made lately. You know, it's cause sort of the lost effect where the entire point of the series is puzzling out the backstory. And, and they've done that on a lot of other shows. You know, everything's got to have an M. Night Shyamalan twist. Or, you know, everyone's got to be mysterious. And we don't know who they are until we figure it out. And so, like, every new person that shows up, well, they must have a really important backstory that explains them. Which may also play into the reaction to the Ray revelation. Where, no, she doesn't have an important backstory. She's important solely because of who she is herself. And people just don't want to accept that. They need this, like, big, deep, revelatory backstory about everybody, but we're in, not everyone needs a big, deep, revelatory backstory. Well, I think, I think the comparison to Lost might be particularly apt because a lot of this was set up by J.J. Abrams and his eternal mystery box. <laughs> well, the problem is J.J. Abrams doesn't pay off 90% of the mysteries that he presents. That? So it's just as well that Ryan Johnson just chucked them all out the window. That is one reason why I'm a little trepidatious about J.J. doing episode 9 now. <laughs> Actually. I mean, that's basically the only thing we know about episode 9 right now, right? Well, we don't is that J.J. has it? Yeah. We don't even know when it's going to take place. I mean, the ending of this movie is very contradictory. We talked about this a little on the last episode, but it struck me even more this time. Because yeah. the end of the Rebellion Resistance storyline is all set up for another, like, 10 to 20 to 30 year time jump. Where, like, the legend of the Resistance can grow, the legend of The Last Jedi can spread, all of these kids that some of whom have Force powers can grow up to become part of the Resistance. The, the Resistance Rebellion storyline is all set up for a significant decade or more time jump. Whereas the First Order storyline, like demands to be picked up immediately with, like, less of a time jump than there was between Force Awakens and The Last Jedi. Whatever is going to happen between Kylo and Hux is going to happen, like, now. Not in ten years, not next week, not tomorrow. 
that storyline yeah. demands to be followed up on immediately. Whereas the Resistance storyline is set up perfectly for a decades-long time jump. And I don't know which way they're going to jump. Well, I think they could still do both. Where Episode Nine follows up on everything now and still stars Daisy Ridley and John Boyega and Adam Driver and all and all those people, and Ryan Johnson is developing a new trilogy that's not about Skywalkers, which is basically all we know about that. Yeah, but for that to happen, what you're saying is that Daisy Ridley and John Boyega and Oscar Isaac do fuck all in Episode Nine. Because we have to wait for the next generation to grow up in the new trilogy in order to finally topple the First Order. I don't know. I don't think that one little kid is going to be a player. I think it was just an extra illustration of what, like, why bother to resist when the odds are that bad. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not saying that that kid necessarily is going to be the main character of more movies, just that he is the personification of the spark of hope that they're talking about in this movie. Yeah, he represents the next generation, and, you know, legends need time to spread and need time to inspire people, and he's the generation that's going to be inspired. I don't know. I think there's probably any number of ways that they could play Episode Nine and still leave an opening for a next generation of Force-sensitive people having adventures and, and everything that they'll do. I lost track of that sentence. <laughs> There's two things that I didn't notice the first time I saw it, because it was the first time I saw it. Kylo makes the point the first time that him and Rey have that connection. He says, how is this happening you can't be projecting yourself to me. The effort would kill you. Yes, he does mm. say that. And then, of course, at the end of the movie, Luke projects himself to Crate and the effort kills him. I didn't notice that synergy the first time I saw it because, you know, I'd forgotten that line an hour and a half before the Crate scene because this is a long <laughs> movie. The other thing I found really interesting, and I don't think you noticed this even the second time because I sort of mentioned it to you and you didn't know what the fuck I was talking about. <laughs> when Yoda makes his appearance and he lights the Jedi cave on fire, the, you know, tree cave thing, whatever, he lights it on fire, burns it down, and Luke says, you know, the sacred Jedi texts are in there. And Yoda says, this is very interesting phrasing, Yoda says, there's nothing in there that Rey doesn't already have with her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is really excellent phrasing, because as we see later, Rey stole the sacred Jedi texts and has them stashed away in a drawer on the Millennium Falcon. I caught that brief glimpse of them at the end of the movie when uh, Finn is getting his blanket for Rose in that drawer. I wasn't quite sure that that was them, actually. I, I waited for confirmation from other people on the internet. Thank you, Bill Curtis, for the internet. You also see them when she's getting ready to get into her little coffin ship to fly off to Kylo Ren. She grabs something from a drawer and you see them in that scene too. That was what I saw the second time that we saw it because I knew that they were there, but I wasn't quite sure yet exactly who took them. I mean, apparently force projections can do lots of things now. Maybe Yoda did it. Um, but, but no, I mean, Occam's Razor probably, Ray took them when she decided that Luke isn't going to be any help, we have to get out of here. 
She she can do the Jedi correspondence course. <laughs> it's amazing she could still read those if they're a thousand generations old. Like a thousand generations ago, I don't think humans had invented writing yet. Yeah, they look a little weird. I'm with you. Well, they're probably strong in the Force. Maybe she can intuit them. <laughs> or have a million Force ghosts come and tutor her. <laughs> Yoda can read them, I'm sure. You need... How long does a language stay stable enough to understand? Do you need, like, a Force ghost from, like, every 500 years? And the one translates for the next, who translates for the next, who translates for the next, who translates for the next... No, you just get one who was the Jedi linguist. Like, who was the Jedi librarian in Attack of the Clones? Does she have a Force ghost? Oh, did she speak the old tongue from a thousand generations earlier? Or I guess 998 generations earlier? Oh, she... <laughs> <laughs> well, she... well, she was the Jedi archivist. I'm sure she knew a lot of languages. <laughs> Alana, you got anything else that you want to uh, hit on? Well, when I reach out with my feelings, I realize I'm really just Raylo trash. Yeah, they kind of killed that in this movie. You think they killed that in this movie? Well, uh, maybe I'm going too far. I thought it was very interesting the way they played with the shipping in this movie. Mm -hmm. Because they, like, build this Kylo Ray relationship through the Force connection, and Ray starts to empathize with him, and she no longer sees him as a monster that deserves to be murdered. And, in fact, she, like, starts to feel sympathy for him because someone tried to murder him. And then she goes to turn herself in because she thinks she can turn him. And mm -hmm. they team up together. And that still is a really cool scene where they team up together. I think that's just, like, yeah. something deep in the sci-fi fan brain. Whenever two people team up to take on their common enemy, that's always, like, awesome. No matter mm -hmm. how incongruous it is. They yep. team up together... And Kylo takes out Snoke, and then there's that awesome scene where he summons the lightsaber, and she grabs it out of the air, and then they fight back-to-back -back against all the guards. They take out all the guards. That scene is awesome. And then she's mm -hmm. like, all right, we took out Snoke. We took out the guards. We can stop the attack. We can save the Resistance. And Kylo's like, no, we're not going to do that. I'm not going to save the Resistance. Kill the Resistance. They're, they're part of our past. We need to kill the past. And you see the disappointment on Ray's face, because she's like, you know, she says earlier to Luke, I need someone to show me my place in all this, and she thought she found, like, a kindred spirit, like, someone else who's looking for his place in all this, and Kyle's like, no, you know, I found my place, my place is to kill everyone and take over. And you can see just how Ray's face falls in that moment. She says, like, something like, you know, please don't do this, or something like that. Yep, please don't go this way, she says. And all of her sympathy for him sort of dies at that point because she's not evil. Like, she had a lot of sympathy for him, and she felt sort of like she was a kindred spirit with him. They were both, you know, young Force users, and neither of them was helped a whole hell of a lot by Luke Skywalker. And now they've teamed up, and so she felt this connection with him, except then he basically ends all of that because she isn't evil and he doesn't mind at all being evil well and that's sort of a fundamental incompatibility that they have yep everybody has different that doesn't mean they're not shipped though it means they're romeo and juliet well it means they're like 
Romeo and I don't know the characters in Romeo and Juliet enough to finish that joke. Well, something's keeping them apart right now. It's a really different moral read on the situation. Like it, it, to me, it's like Romeo and Juliet weren't kept apart because Romeo liked to murder strangers. You know. It's not like, oh, they would be perfect together if only one of them didn't like to murder vagrants and the other one didn't like to murder vagrants. You know, it's... Ray is on the good side. She wants to do good and be good and fight evil. And Kylo, I don't know that he loves evil, but he's certainly all in favor of himself being on the side of evil and himself doing evil, and he strives to be as evil as he can... So to to me, it's more that the quote unquote good rejected him. His parents rejected him and so did Luke. So he doesn't see that as a path. Like, so every time there's a crossroads, Ray clearly sees the path and runs on it with zero hesitation. Every time there's a crossroads for Kylo, there's two different pain filled options. There's trying to interact with people who already rejected him and in some cases tried to kill him. Or there's this other equally violent, equally painful thing where he is generating the pain. He's either receiving the pain or generating the pain and he stands in the middle, unable to make a choice. So Ray sees it clearly, can run right in the right direction, and Kylo is full of conflict. And that is what's dividing them. I don't think Kylo's pulled towards evil. I think it's that he is rejected from good. I would disagree with you that he doesn't make a choice or can't make a choice. He clearly makes a choice. I mean, that is the the moment when he makes his choice. Yeah, but he's the same point that I made a couple hours ago, though. Like, I think the First Order is on the bonfire along with everything else he wants to see die. He doesn't want the First Order or the Resistance. He wants null set. He wants option C, something new. Well, if that's what he wants, he could have, like, just hopped in a ship and left and abandoned both of them. Instead, he takes over the First Order and tries to wipe out the Resistance. I think that's picking a side. That's because she knocked him out. She knocked him out. He he lost his uh, cover. It's also because he still has to kill Luke. Yeah, he does still have to kill Luke. But I mean, when when there's two sides and you take over one of the sides and try to wipe out the other side, I think you've picked a side. Yeah, but that's, like, that's all emotionally... Yeah, I don't know. I just... It's... Yeah. I think it's interesting how a lot of characters in these movies have very different ideas about Kylo Ren's agency. Leia and Han think that Snoke just corrupted him. And Snoke thinks that... Snoke just corrupted him. Well, Snoke (laughs) thinks that there's something pulling at him. You know, the, the good is still pulling at him and he has to corrupt him some more. And Luke thinks he just failed him and that's why all of this has happened. And then when he kills Snoke and kills all the all of Snoke's guards and takes over the First Order, he takes that agency for himself. He reinforces that this is my decision and this is what I've decided. You know, Ray thinks that he needs to be shown the light side. He needs to be shown the good side and he'll just go with it because, of course, who wouldn't? It's it's the light side. But he, again, takes his own agency. That this is what I've decided to do. 
we're told over and over again that the dark side is about giving in to your feelings, right? And Kylo is all about giving in to his feelings. He has very strong feelings, and he enjoys feeling them. Uh, except for the enjoyment part, but yeah. <laughs> well, you know, fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, hate leads to suffering. Mm. And he is suffering so good. He is suffering so good, I could literally watch that all day. <laughs> Maybe I'm a sadist. I'm not above it. I mean, we don't know what they're going to do in episode 9, obviously, but... I mean, they're probably not going to fuck TBH. Because it's Disney. <laughs> but I did find that very interesting, the way they sort of... This is a movie that's in many ways aware of the fandom environment in which it exists. Yes, it's very self-conscious. Yes. Like, like the comments Snoke makes about Kylo's mask is very sort of aware of the fandom in which the movie exists. All the talk about like the legend of Luke Skywalker and Luke basically saying to the fans, Why are you so hung up on Luke Skywalker? I'm just one dude. I can't take out the entire First Order on my own. Let other people do things. Why are you so hung up on the legend of Luke Skywalker? That's a comment that's very aware of the fandom milieu in which it exists. And they really play with the shipping, I thought. I found that really interesting, the way they played with that. The way they grew their relationship. The way they had Rey have compassion for Kylo. They had the scene where Rey sees Kylo coming out of the shower. And they built up to them finally teaming up. And then it just doesn't happen because, oh yeah, she won't be evil. And he is being evil. And, like I said, it's a fundamental incompatibility. Yeah. And then she spends the rest of the movie back on fighting against him. You know, fighting the TIE fighters, protecting the Resistance, helping them escape. She literally closes the door in his face at the end. Because she tried to bring him back to the light, and he said, no thanks. I'm fine where I am. Um... Just about good from my end. Elena, what do you think? I'm good. I love him. I ship it. <laughs> <laughs> Alright. You want to do the score stuff? Yeah, let's do the score corrections. <laughs> While we're supplementing our first Last Jedi episode, I think it's important to note that we have received some corrections and some additions to our discussion of John Williams' score for this movie. Hey, Scott, it turns out there are a couple more themes than we thought. Well, sort of. Uh, th there is a certain sinking feeling when, you know, you listen to something a couple of times and, and, and you see the movie and it turns out that there are sequences that had a lot more going on than you thought. I mean, honestly, in my brain, a lot of it just kind of got filed under vaguely Star Wars-y stuff. This is another reason why I prefer to do a more, you know, considered analysis show after several viewings rather than a first reaction show after seeing it once and not even having a chance to listen to the soundtrack. Yeah, fair. And it helps that by now the Oscar promo for the score has come out. Uh, How do they do an Oscar promo for this score? Well, okay, for, for listeners who don't have the background on, on the score stuff... 
There are promos sent out to Oscar voters to get nominated and eventually to get the Oscar for uh, certain scores. Uh, studios put out these promos to send them to voters, and in the past, they would just make up a bunch of CDRs and mail them to people. In the far past, they would make up a bunch of cassettes and send them to people. But now, um, at least a couple of the studios, Disney does it, I think, Fox 2? I, I don't remember exactly. I know Disney does it for a bunch of them, because there's, there's one for Thor, too. Well, Thor 3, too. What Disney does, and a couple other studios do, is they have a website that kind of centralizes their Oscar push for all of their movies, and they just have a download up on the website of a promotional album featuring the score, which in a lot of cases is different from the commercial album. Uh, there might be some tracks that weren't included on the commercial album that are on the Oscar promo. In the case of The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi and Rogue One, there are tracks that are on the commercial album that are not on the Oscar promo because of Oscar rules about the use of prior themes. And that's what you're getting at in terms of how do you make a promo for this score, which is built so, so much around the Force theme and Kylo Ren's theme and Rey's theme, right? Well, that's basically what I was getting at. The Oscars have this rule that you're not supposed to consider award-worthy someone who writes a score using themes that were written for a previous movie, which I think is kind of a stupid rule, but... So these promos are built around music only with themes that was written for this movie. So, like, the main title isn't on the Oscar promo, because it uses a theme that wasn't written for this movie. But, like, everything in the score, I mean... Okay, there's that one Luke on the Jedi Island theme that, like, we didn't realize was a theme because it's really short, and it has two separate parts that are, like, almost totally different, and we'll get into that, but, like, there's that and there's Rose's theme. You can't make an Oscar promo CD out of that. There are those. There's and there's a recurring idea for Admiral Holdo as well. There's a little more subtlety to the score than I think I ascribed to it. You know, when we did our first show. Does that Holdo theme show up anywhere other than one track on the promo CD? I'm pr I'm pretty sure it comes up a couple of times. Like when they introduce Holdo, they don't use Holdo's theme. Right. Is that theme used anywhere other than the one track that's not even on the commercial CD from the scene where she hyperspace jumps into the First Order ship? There's a little of it in the end credits on the commercial CD, but I think that might be from the prior track. There's 800 things in the end credits. Yeah, that's true. And it's the same, it's the same thing with the like motif that's used for Luke on the island. Or I guess there's two of them, or they're, or they're part of the one. No, they're together. I mean, it's a theme that's in a couple of parts. Like, Ray's theme has several distinct parts, but they're all Ray's theme. Yeah, well, okay, fine. But, I mean, this this Luke thing, A, it's very short, and B, it's I don't think it's used at all for Luke anywhere other than when he's on the island trying not to mentor Ray. Like, it's very situationally specific. Well, there's only one scene in the movie when Luke isn't on the island, and even then he's really still on the island. Yeah, but in that scene, they use Luke's theme. They don't use this new thing. 
It's practically the only time in the movie they use Luke's theme to represent Luke. I think the only other time is when he's represented by the action figure at the end and they use some of Luke's theme. Well, but, yeah, because that's the legend of Luke Skywalker. And Luke's whole point on the island is that he's not the legendary Luke Skywalker. He's not the Luke Skywalker who gets the main fanfare of the entire series because he's rejected that mantle. And so now he has this... Vaguely Star Wars-y thing. <laughs> well, now he has this very different theme that conveys a very different feeling. And... Honestly, in the grand scheme of Star Wars, it's, it's kind of underwhelming for a Luke theme. But I think the point of that is that Luke turns out to be very underwhelming to Rey. At first, at least. You know, he gets better. But he rejects the legendary Luke Skywalker that had the huge crashing fanfare. I mean, that's the point of Luke's story in this movie. For all of my pointing out that it's only used in a very specific situation, it might be the theme that gets the most exploration. Or at least the theme that's, like, used the most. Because, like, every other theme gets, like, played, and a lot of them are used in interesting ways. Uh, maybe not the most exploration is the wrong way to phrase it, but every theme that they use in this movie, they, like, just, like, play it, and then they move on to something else. They never... I think we mentioned that in the last episode, that they never dwell in a theme. Like, there's a lot of really interesting uses of various themes in this movie, but absolutely none of them is explored for more than 30 seconds. Yeah, I don't know how many more times I can kind of shrug and say, well, that's how they make movies now. I don't think you can say that at all. And do you know why? Well, okay. I don't think you could say that at all because of Star Trek 2009 and Star Trek Into Darkness. Those movies have long themes that are played for long periods of time, that are explored, long melodies, long themes, that are played for more than one iteration at a time. And those movies are directed by J.J. Abrams. You cannot tell me that new movies are so frenetic you can't dwell on a theme except for J.J. Abrams. His movies are nice and calm and sedate and give you these nice long places where you can put lots of music. Well, Force Awakens had some... Uh beefy swaths as well. The introduction of Rey, that whole sequence, introducing her theme as well. I don't think you can just blame it on that's how they make movies now. I, maybe you could blame it on, like, other directors don't know how to incorporate score into their films as well as J.J. Abrams. You know, maybe J.J. Abrams, you know, for all the, the frenetic filmmaking technique that he's accused of using, especially in the Star Trek movies... Maybe he's just really particularly good at accommodating and incorporating a score into his movies. Clearly, not many other directors are. Yeah, th there are some directors who tend to be kinder to their scores than others. I mean, for it, instance, George Lucas absolutely murdered the scores to the prequels. Well, yes, there's George Lucas and Ben Burtt and the editors and, and everyone on those. We talked enough about that in the in the other episode, but um, you know what? Though speaking of that, because we ranked all the Star Wars scores in the last episode, I think I was underrating Force Awakens a little bit. Really? And it's because you said in the last episode that The Empire Strikes Back has the best end credit suite of any of them. Mm-hmm. I think the number one challenger is Force Awakens. It's a strong contender. It really that is. is such a good. And I mentioned in Force Awakens how like. The Ray's theme suite on the CD and the Resistance March suite on the CD was, like, my least favorite versions of those two themes. 
the version of those two themes that's in the end credit suite is so much better. That is such a good suite. It has the better version of the Resistance March than the Resistance March track. It has a better version of Ray's theme than the Ray's theme track. It has some of Kylo Ren's theme. And then it has that bit at the end where it alternates between phrases of Ray's theme and phrases of the Force theme. In, in counterpoint, yeah. And before the credits start, it has the Jedi steps that lead into it. Because for Empire, you're counting the whole Rebel Fleet part where they play that big sweeping version of the Hand and Leia love theme. Well, if you want to talk about the lead-ins, that, that's a whole other discussion. If you want to include the lead-ins and, and the end credit suite, then you have the Jedi Steps theme, and then you have the better version of Ray's theme, better version of the Resistance March, and that awesome bit where it alternates between Ray's theme and the Force theme, also some of Kylo's theme in there. I think that is a really strong contender for the best end credit suite. And I, I was not giving that enough credit when I rated the scores last time. I'm not sure I'd say that all of the versions in the end credits are better than their independent uses elsewhere on the album, but they are very, very strong. Well, because I remember when we were doing Force Awakens episodes, yeah. I didn't use the race theme track as a music bumper, and I didn't use the Resistance March track as a music bumper. I used both of them plucked out of the end credits, because it was better. We mentioned the new Luke theme having a couple of discrete sections, and I mentioned that race theme does too. And I'm not sure if it's entirely fair on my part. I mean, it's, it's a common compositional technique, obviously, but in recent scores... I identify that method a lot with Michael Giacchino, actually, given so many of his themes from Lost, and the main theme from his Star Trek scores as well, has several discrete parts that can be broken up and used individually and put in counterpoint in different ways. So that's something that I associate very much with him, except on Rogue One, where he was doing the classic John Williams techniques to an extent. Well, that is a classic John Williams technique. I mean, the Star Wars main theme has different parts. Well, one of the things that Williams did in a lot of his scores that we all grew up on, you know, the Star Warses and the Indiana Joneses, was that he had discrete themes that he kind of put together. You know, there's the A section and the B section of the Star Wars theme, Luke's theme, mm -hmm. Luke's first theme. <laughs> Same thing with the Imperial March. Uh, same thing with the Imperial March to, to an extent. I mean, very much with the Indiana Jones main theme, where he literally wrote two themes and presented them to Steven Spielberg and said, I don't know which one to use for the movie. And Spielberg said, why not both? <laughs> um, th th but like the that's, that's a little different from what I'm talking about with Ray's theme, though, because the different parts of it and the different parts of the new Luke theme, I don't think stand up, not all of them would stand up as their own discrete themes. Whereas the, the two sections of Luke's theme are like full developed discrete themes that are put together to represent the character and to represent the series. I, I think that's a little different from what's going on in, in Ray's theme where, for example, there are different sections that are maybe not as melodically developed on their own, but are used in combination in different ways. Or can be used separately in different ways. Well, yeah, I was going to say, they pretty much are used separately. Yeah, they're used separately in places in Force Awakens, and in several places in, in The Last Jedi, there's one section or another of Rey's theme. Yeah. I mean, Kylo Ren's theme has the same thing. 
You know, there is kind of a, a suite of Kylo material that is used in various combinations. Well, there's one particular combination of the different parts of it that's used the most, but it does also have those discrete sections. Does it? Yeah. I thought those were two different themes. One of them was a First Order theme, and the other was Kylo's theme. No, I think it's all Kylo. I don't really recall a discrete First Order theme. I thought that's what that was. One of those was Kylo's theme, the other one was the First Order theme. You know, like the way in Rogue One, they have a Krennic theme and then a separate Imperial theme. I would have to see what other people are saying about that, but I don't think that's the impression that I got. That's the impression I got from Force Awakens. Hmm. I mean, I guess I'd have to go back and watch the movie and analyze exactly when each theme is used in what context, but that's what I thought. Like, the two parts of the new Luke theme are so different that I literally thought they were different motifs. Because, like, they're in the end credits, and it plays, like, the one part, and then the other part, and then the first part again, and then the second part again. And the first several times I listened to the end credits suite, I thought it kept switching to different things. And, like, literally until you pointed out to me, no, those are both the new Luke theme. <laughs> like you say, thus are the dangers of... Uh podcasting about something before you really absorb it for a while, I like, guess. Like, one really doesn't flow into the other, like, the two parts of the main theme and the two parts of the Imperial March or anything like that, you know? Well, the whole theme is kind of staccato. I mean, it's, it's not going to uh, flow very much just on its own. You know, Rose's theme, in contrast, is very flowing. Well, Rose's theme is almost too flowing. We talked about that in the last episode. Right. It sounds like Cloud City. Or Harry Potter. <laughs> Alright, I think that will do it for us on this supplemental Last Jedi episode. Uh, maybe the last Last Jedi episode. Ooh. <laughs> um, Alana, where can people find your voice and your ideas on the internet? If you want to find me on Facebook, I'm Alana Jane, and a lot of the times I'm talking about Kylo Ren... If you want to find me on Tumblr, my Tumblr is Flannelsaurus. Flannel like the fabric, Saurus like the dinosaur. <laughs> and a lot of the times it's Sherlock stuff, but right now it is all Raylo trash. But you can certainly interact with what I find meaningful and read metas that I think are important, etc. I also am a regular guest on the Stay Woke podcast. The last one that I appeared on was on some films that came out in 2017. Um, it was recorded before The Last Jedi, but there was some good stuff about what's going on in the MCU and DC universes. And you can find that one. It's released regularly on iTunes and then some of the other podcatching apps will have it as well. Excellent. Uh, yeah, I've, I've listened to your episodes on there, and they're uh, very enjoyable, very insightful. So, uh, uh, listeners, oh, definitely check those out. Thanks, bud. If you would like to find me, I am on Twitter and Tumblr and Instagram. I recently remembered to start plugging if you want to see pictures of my cat. And recently a picture of me in the uh, Cyclone Blast with uh, ice encrusting my whole beard. I am on uh, Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram at Bun. If you would like to send in a question for us to answer, uh, Scott and myself and my dear friend Steve Willie on our spectacular advice shows, 
The email address for that is spectacularadvice at gmail.com. Please send us questions. We like doing those shows, and we would like to do more. We would like to answer your questions, so please get to us. You can also find me every Wednesday at 9 a.m. sharp at placetobenation.com with the Wednesday Walk Around the Web, a link roundup of things that I find interesting or funny or informative in some way, and I hope you do too. If you want to reach Scott, you can ask a question at spectacularadvice at gmail.com. That is the only way that anyone can reach you other than me yelling down the stairs to you, right? Don't yell down the stairs at me. Yeah, I know. It'll wake up the roommate, too. (laughs) Alright, that will do it for us. Thank you, Alana, for being with us. Thank you, listeners, for being with us. Yeah, Scott, thank you, too. Uh, We will see you next time. I think that's a bad...